This is Daffy B with Recovery Works Theater, and we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Welcome back. It's Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at 12-step life, now with less dogma and more bite. This is episode 55. Remember when AA wrote the new big book, you know, the oldie 1939 one was getting a wee dated and they made a new one? Actually, they made two. They made a practical secular one and a separate one with all of the spiritual supernatural recovery stuff wasn't that great uh wait you don't know what i'm talking about okay i'm not a hundred percent teasing you i'll explain later what in heck i'm talking about uh welcome everyone to another rebellion dogs radio show this is episode 55 Lachlan is our musical guest with her 2021 new release, Energy. At the time of writing, it's early days, 2021. How does one not drift from our day-to-time center to sort of uh, think about the past and think about the future? The past, I've done primary historical research and reporting on atheists and agnostics and free thinkers and other underrepresented populations in AA, the greater recovery community. 2021, this is the 50th anniversary of AA being founderless. Uh, Bill W., the author of our most infamous literature, died January 21st, 1971. So that's 50 years now that we are post-founder. Reflecting on the future, too, I'm now researching AA fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, when you look for a broader irreligious definition, describes a strict adherence to the basic principles of any subject or discipline. Strictly speaking, fundamentalism is religious zealotry, a form of religion that upholds beliefs in a strict literal interpretation of scripture. Protestant Christianity and Islam are examples of religions that uh, within the expanse of their adherence, we do find some fundamentalists. When there is fundamentalism, there is holy writ. And the only holy writ for AA would really be the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. There are those who rigidly decry that big book AA is the only real AA. To a lesser extent, there is a zealous subculture that yearns for a counter-narrative, a a post-big book AA. This turning point will end dogma and reluctantly drag AA into the already 20-year-old 21st century. Both the for and against camps, these are book-based causes, one calling Alcoholics Anonymous a sacred text, the other camp calling it an outdated drag on AA's growth. Not everyone in AA pays any attention to the big book. Not everyone who reads and swears by 
the big book is a zealot or a fundamentalist. Many AAs today attribute their sobriety to following the big book instructions with the aid of a sponsor. The majority of big book lovers are just that. They credit the book Alcoholics Anonymous for their sobriety while recognizing that there are many paths to AA recovery, some of them without a book, some of them without the 12 steps, live and let live, an Alcoholics Anonymous ditty, page 118, two wise, is as much a part of their creed as God could and would if he were sought, page 60, how it works. Not every big book lover is a fundamentalist. However, the term big book thumper is associated with the most common form of AA fundamentalism. Only God can relieve a, air quotes, real alcoholic from addiction and the vital relationship with said creator can only reliably be achieved with the guidance of a sponsor following the instructions exactly as laid out in Alcoholics Anonymous, the book. Our founder was no fundamentalist. Sure, we see signs of the righteousness of the recently converted informing Bill W. as he penned the good AA book. I had a little of that going on when I was two to five years sober. Many of us do. Did I know what was what back then? Oh, yes, I did. Bill Wilson evolved and matured after his first literary effort, modeling emotional growth, perspective, and open-mindedness. Bill's uh, later writings show uh, candor about the shortcomings of AA and his Love by Thousands first book. Bill W. lived to see our 35th anniversary as a fellowship and addressed us at the Miami World Convention in 1970. All of AA was reveling in the glory of reaching the 300,000 member mark. Who would have thought? Bill was writing essays about how many were lost, how many we let down, how we could do better. I don't discourage skeptics from questioning the integrity of AA record-keeping. Data management, that's not our thing. But AA uh, kept records on members and groups, and I find that this annual tally, which I agree has never once been 100% accurate, can at least be a means that I can compare the counting of noses from 1971 to 50 years later in 2021. While the data is imperfect, we do observe trends by comparing one collection of data to the next. Decreases in membership, increases in membership. Since 1950, AA has had a general service conference. AAs around the world would gather to discuss the fellowship's business this is a reasonable record of the ebb and flow of issues of the day through the years. Still, doubters have an abundance of uh, persistent inaccuracies to draw upon. Even our anniversary, June 10th, 1935, it's been proven to be incorrect. We celebrate the birthday of AA that day, but 
you can look on Google and you can look on Wikipedia and figure out when Dr. Bob went to the uh, AMA convention and when he could have gotten back. So we would actually pin his last drink probably around June 17th. It was only later in AA's history that retrospectively they thought that meeting of two drunks had significance. An armchair historian of the day uh, wouldn't have had archives or internet to fact-check their memory, not like we do today. One AA history trap that bears false memories and assumptions about our past is the just-as-it-has-always-been fallacy. A case in point is the folklore that past members all relied on the book Alcoholics Anonymous as being the instructions for finding and keeping sobriety. Recently debunked by William Shaberg in his 2019 writing the big book, The Creation of AA, is the myth that the 12 steps were widely followed by every AA's, as described in the book Bill W. wrote. In other words, the idea that the 12-step process was a collective experience, eh, that's a stretch. We now know the steps were the last thing that Bill wrote. We find them in How It Works and Into Action, chapters 5 and 6, where we describe the 12 steps. But by then, the stories had all been recorded. The first four chapters, the following chapters had all been written. Other than a vague similarity to Bill's final edit of his own story, where Sheberg identifies at least 10 of the 12 processes, none of the other 27 AA stories refer to 12 steps. Not even the sort of fabled six-step precursor that people say the 12 steps grew from. There's no records from the 30s or 40s about any six-step program. We didn't start hearing about that till 1950. And a story, looking back in 1950 or 55, from how it was way back when someone talked about working a six-step program, and that appears in the second edition in 1955 of the, the big book, there may be some truth, it may be an old wives' tale. Here's what Sheberg does report. As it has been noted here repeatedly, Bill Wilson was no great respecter to the actual facts when it came to AA history. When he wrote or talked, his purpose was not to deliver a precisely accurate account of what had actually happened. And whenever inconvenient or messy details were encountered, Bill would modify them, sometimes significantly, and then streamline the whole story for a dramatic impact he felt was necessary to underline the specific moral or inspirational message he was trying to deliver to an audience. New Year's Day 2021 I had the privilege of being a guest on Here's Tom with the Weather. Thanks, David and Anna. That was fun. I was asked to muse on the topic, should the AA Big Book be rewritten? I'm not going to say I dodged the question, but I offered some context to see 
how central the big book is now and was back then. January 1st, I mentioned AA is entering our 86th year of a, as a fellowship, so half the fellowship ago, it was 1978. Any of us still alive who came to AA prior to 78, we have lived experience of the first half of AA history so far. Everyone, most of AA, sober after that, is part of the second half of AA so far. Back then, we weren't a book-adoring, passage-quoting fellowship. This characteristic came to prominence in the second half of AA. Half of AAs today are sober under 10 years, according to our triennial survey. So most people aren't from the first 43 years. I've mentioned before when I tell my AA story, reporting that I never read the big book until I was sober over 10 years. People can't imagine how I got sober. Anyone from pre-1980 knows what I'm talking about because my case was not unique. I don't pretend to have a sense of AA everywhere, but in Montreal, I didn't actually know anyone who had read the big book. I'm sure someone had, and I assumed it was a fine book. It seemed irrelevant to overcoming addiction in the mid-1970s. Why would anyone refer to what someone born in the Victorian era did during the Great Depression when I could draw on the collective wisdom of thousands of AA members alive and well living in Montreal at the time? Maybe if I had a history question, I'd ask about or read the book, but my questions were urgent, present-day problems like, how did people muster the integrity to stay sober? Would life still include sex and rock and roll without drugs? I was a teenage alcoholic addict from the mid-70s. How a stock trader or proctologist with sketchy resumes could be the key to my woes was missed on me. I modeled the sober members that I observed and that I thought were cool. Our crowd back in the day, we went to speaker meetings. There was the odd discussion meeting. If we read anything, Living Sober had just been published and people were pretty excited about that. Came to Believe or articles from Grapevine would do fine also. It just seemed more reasonable to draw on the relevant information of a living alcoholic sober today. You know, people with a television. You know what I mean? No one disrespected the founders or the big book. We were indifferent to it. Who reads the final report of the General Service Conference or the minutes from the latest area assembly when they're three weeks or three months sober? No one! Why? Because it's not relevant. It's not to say that the records of AA affairs are unimportant. It's just not urgent or helpful. AA sobriety was transmitted one alcoholic to another through our experience, our stories. Sobriety came from listening and being listened to. In the next Rebellion Dogs blog and podcast, I'll share my personal experience to illustrate AA life pre- fundamentalism. And again, I'm not saying all of AA today is fundamentalist. 
I mean, we had liberal and conservative members back in the 70s. I don't recall anyone speaking to, especially putting down another's approach to AA. No one called someone else's sobriety watered down AA. Live and let live was a core value. It wasn't just a slogan hanging on the wall. So, let's talk about post-founder AA and why that was necessary for the rise of a book-based society. The primacy of our first book, it transformed the second half of AA. It wasn't so relevant in the first half. I'll be writing more about these conservative influences and how they reified the AA message for the majority of groups of members. Interestingly, much of my understanding of progressive AA, special purpose groups for atheists, black indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ community, young peoples, these groups and this movement, this subculture, it comes into play in this story about more conservative or more fundamentalist members and groups, the progressive yin to the fundamentalist yang. I'll bring the hard evidence shortly. AA was no book-based society in the first half of AA history, but we have become a little more of that. Or more accurately, this is the dominant meeting style. Is it a fad? Is it our finale? That's hard to tell. Very little stays the same. I see great elasticity in AA's ability to evolve. Despite our collective uh, resistance to change, here's how the yin-yang thing played out. In 1990s, the recovery world became saturated with books. Alcoholics Anonymous was everywhere. As we became book-based in the way religions are, two subcultures emerged out of this book-based society the widening the gateway camp, and the preserve the integrity of the message camp. Each camp's in-group eyed the other camp with suspicion or concern. Team preserve the message sees neuroscience, positive psychology, a more secular society, medically assisted recovery, treatment infrastructure, anything that doesn't follow a strict 164-page diet. They see this as watered down, AA, confusing, the delicate newcomer. The reason AA is failing, unlike the uh, imaginary good old days, like anyone's good old days, um, revisionist history is required and a bad memory. Now, from the progressive clan who blame literalists for stalling AA evolution and promoting learned dependency on supernatural agency and sponsors. The liberals disparage our more conservative members as rigid, fear-mongering, drunk on self-righteousness, humorless. What is perceived as an aversion to 21st century realities is blamed for AA's reification of a message that's just so five minutes ago for young people and anti-intellectual for the well-educated. 
muckers and thumpers are why AA membership hasn't grown for 30 years. And if you're not growing, you're dying. Bad thumpers, shame on you. Both camps borrow authority from the words of Bill W. to point the finger at the other's wrongness. One polarized subgroup was a reaction to the other. Or maybe they fueled each other. Coincidence? History shows that our first agnostic atheist meeting started around the same time as our first big book study groups, catering to more liberal and more inclusive and also more traditional and more structured views of AA. Both subcultures flourished. Some celebrated the diversity of our widening gateway. For others, it seemed like an AA version of the narcissism of small differences was finding its way into AA, both sides portraying themselves as the true AA heroes and scapegoating the other camp as the villains. Okay, so societal transformation, it's got phases. How does a thriving oral tradition-based society become book-based? <laughs> like sobriety, one day at a time. There is wisdom in codifying our legacy, recording our stories for posterity. Yet treating a book as authoritative AA and holding out those who quote and color highlight the book's words as the gatekeepers to the AA way, that'll help some and it'll alienate others. During the life of the author, we had big book enthusiasts. They were legitimate AA practitioners, but they held no supremacy over the Meeting Makers Make It members or others who crafted their recovery according to their own learning style, maybe taking advantage of sponsorship, uh, maybe reading uh, different rituals, whatever they saw fit. The first thing a book-based society needs is more books. So, big book's ubiquity symbolizes the primacy of the AA narrative. There's a measurable difference between the first half of AA and the second half of AA, and it has to do with how many big books were hanging around. As we do forget, big books are everywhere today. doesn't mean it's always been that way. Fun facts. The big book was not a bestseller out of the gate. It took 34 years to sell 1 million copies of Alcoholics Anonymous. This milestone didn't happen until the year 1974, after Bill, the book's author, died. Number two, a third edition launched in 1976, and four years from the 1 million mark, we hit the 2 million cumulative sales mark, 1978. Number three, fun fact. By 1990, AA World Services was selling one million big books every year. Fun fact four. At the turn of the century, the Library of Congress deemed 88 titles books that shaped America. Alcoholics Anonymous made that list. And fun fact number five. Originally planned as a ceremony at the Detroit World Convention of AA in 2020, Dr. George Kube, director of the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, was given the 
millionth printed copy of the big book to commemorate our long-established cooperation between AA and the professional community. So, Bill W. had to die to sell a million books. Soon thereafter, we were selling a million copies every year. Lois W., having been by Bill's side all of his adult life, made more from AA royalties than Bill, the author, did. At the time of Bill's death, $633,000 had been paid out in royalties. That was, as we talked about earlier, 1971. At Lois's death in 1989, $10 million was earned on Bill's royalties. The big book, 12 and 12, AA comes of age, and as Bill sees it. I created a chart and a graph to visualize one method of what we could call big book saturation, how that happened and when it happened. Looking at sales per year per member, how many copies of the big book have been sold in one year compared to in the second half of AA history. You can find this on the website. I hope the book sales data can demonstrate um, what I've tried to explain, partly by personal experience. I didn't live everywhere. I went to meetings, but I didn't go to every meeting everywhere. My experience is anecdotal, and I don't believe it's universal. Now, this book copy sold per member each year is not an exacting measure. Uh, many big books started being purchased by treatment centers. That was a factor. A treatment approach called 12-step facilitation became a thing. The joke is, uh, I didn't stay sober, but now I own this $40,000 big book. The 28-day inpatient program was rather expensive, but it came with a free big book, which they still have. And Cocaine Anonymous? They can out-thump your average AA member. They love them some big book speakers, big book sponsors, and big book meetings. Many other AA fellowship attendees are encouraged to read or study Alcoholics Anonymous. Hopeful family members of people with alcohol use disorder buy the book too, looking for clues from reading the pages and carefully misplacing the book where their partner might find it, hoping it will have a healing effect. So before I uh, make all these flawed statistical uh, correlations <laughs> and uh, connecting correlation to causality, it maybe it shows something useful, so why not? It's going to be fun. Let's do it. So you will see from the chart when you look at it that um, up until the year 1970, each year we sold one big book for every five to ten AA members. Our membership was growing. We had 128,000 members in 1953. By 1970, we more than doubled, 311,000. There was a little jump in book sales in 1955 when the second edition came out. And then it hopped right up in 1976, too, uh, with uh, the third edition coming out. 
Now our membership from 75 to 85 in 10 years, we doubled again, going to a million members. And by 1990, we were 2 million members. That growth has peaked out. We've stayed plus or minus 10% of 2 million members for the last 30 years. But what changed is the number of books sold per member. From 1990, we've been selling one book for every two members. At one point in 2005, we peaked unit sales equaling 68% of members. Imagine seven out of 10 members sitting in an AA meeting with the fourth edition big book on their lap. When less members own a book, less members quote that book. When more members own Alcoholics Anonymous, it stands to reason there'd be an increase in the chorus of big bookisms being parroted at each meeting. As we reach the saturation in the second half of AA history, a connection can be drawn by onlookers that AA is the book to which the fellowship is based upon. How different that is from AA is a fellowship, sharing our experience, strength, and hope. Oh, and we have a book. Oh, we have a few books. Today, the question could be asked, what does AA believe? While there's very little that every AA agrees upon, what might be meant by what does AA believe could arguably mean what's printed in the book. Okay, the 1990s. This is where uh, reification happened and the preservation of Bill W.'s uh, writings. 1993 General Service Conference. Let's go there. We've been selling a million copies of Alcoholics Anonymous for some time now, long enough that for many members this is all they'd ever known. The population of our fellowship had stopped growing, was the conference aware of that or concerned about it? I don't know. Someone had brought up at that year's conference the idea of updating our first three chapters in the big book. Well, channeling Newton's third law for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction, this effort to update Alcoholics Anonymous prompted the equal and opposite advisory action which passed, and it goes as follows. Because of strong sentiment against any change in the first 164 pages of the big book, the request to rewrite the first three chapters of the big book, we recommend that this not be implemented. The publication of a facsimile of the first edition of the big book should not be undertaken and would destroy the sentimental value of the actual first edition. Let's just skip past the fact that they did print a first edition facsimile. That was much later. So the Conference Literature Committee further felt that no need existed for a book with an updated chapters 1 through 3. So, can conference actions be reversed? Yes, it takes the agreement of two-thirds of the conference voters. But while AA, we don't consider ourselves old-fashioned, we collectively 
have rationalized that where the written word of Bill W. is concerned, no change will or should be made. Living Sober, our booklet or our pamphlets, other AA stuff, it's updated regularly. But there is a great wish about the big book that it works. Please do not fix it. This came to me on the fly while on the podcast, Here's Tom with the Weather. Our book is like Shakespeare. Sure, Hamlet and Much Ado About Nothing would be more accessible to young people if it was translated to hip-hop, but that's not happening. The original prose and verse language is being preserved, and Shakespeare is still here, baby, still appealing to some who inflict it upon others. I contend the big book should carry on as long as it serves its members, period. We don't need to burn nothing. But the preservation of our sacred text, it need not hold up AA's future. Groups and members that read our 1939 version of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, should always have a supply of that book. While I will talk about a more modern book, I don't see it as an either-or binary choice of A, a new book, and therefore banish the original, or B, preserve the original, therefore, it's forbidden to write anything new. What's the case for something new? Many of us know we can have a perfectly good AA meeting without cracking any book open or reading any passages from it. We had AA meetings before we had AA books, and members found sobriety without a book. For many of us, our preference and or learning style is such that AA for us is one alcoholic talking to another, no authority, not a book, not a spirit, not any organizational hierarchy directing how our meeting is to be conducted. Our meeting is autonomous, and our own sharing, storytelling, this provides everything we need from our meeting to maintaining and or finding sobriety. And we've already talked about book-based AA meetings, Big Book or 12 and 12 or Living Sober or others. It's different strokes for different folks. An AA meeting is like a box of chocolates. A thought about the word uh, new when we're talking about a new book and putting new and the general service conference in the same sentence Uh, Technically, we uh, put out a new book in 2019. It was called Our Great Responsibility, a selection of Bill W.'s General Service Conference Talks, 1951 to 1970. That's right. Our new book in 2019 was Bill Wilson Talks from 50 or 70 years ago. Here's the sales pitch on Amazon.com. Timeless and timely, these 16 talks give fresh perspective in the AA Fellowship's co-founder's own words, the first original title released by Alcoholics Anonymous in over 30 years since Daily Reflections. So if you're asking me, Joe, I hear you have some issues with the primacy of the big book. If you want to talk to us about some AA that has an appetite for a new contemporary basic text, Well, if that's the way you think, can I interest you in some swampland in Florida? Very funny. LOL. (laughs) I see what you're getting at. What I actually hope to convey today is three things. 
Uh, number one, members of AA who resign themselves to an idea that our big book is the de facto AA narrative may not see what others, including me, see going on in AA right now. While the book and program of AA works for many, why isn't the solution appealing to those outside our doors? Number two, discussed before on Rebellion Dogs, conference-approved literature doesn't suggest to members or groups they're not getting any nudge from the General Service Office that because we have conference-approved literature that anything is disapproved. There's something we should or should not be reading. Many groups read from non-AA books in their meetings. And three, for members who decry that both they and newcomers are underserved by reliance on the writings of so few with so little experience, and I'm talking the 1939 Alcoholics Anonymous, how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism, and that AA ought to update our collective experience, well, we did. In 1975, based on 40 years' experience, based on over 500,000 members, AA's collective experience was compiled by the General Service Conference. They called it Living Sober. Maybe we already have what you're looking for if you're into updating the Big Book. Don't worry, Big Book thumpers, we're not coming for your sacred text but we're going to talk about underserved populations and how AA could meet more people's needs more effectively. The state of addiction today. Here's some more fun facts. Number one, 15 million Americans over the age of 18 live with alcohol use disorder. 15 million. Two, a dismal 6.7% of people who need treatment get treatment. Three, alcoholism and alcohol-related deaths. It's the third leading lifestyle-related cause of death in the United States. Number four, 40% of all hospital beds across the country are used to treat health conditions that develop from alcoholism. Five, a person who succumbs to excessive alcohol use loses a potential of 30 years of life. Number six, in 2012, 3.2 million deaths, 6% of all global deaths, were attributed to alcohol consumption. And seven, in the age group 20 to 39, what we call scarcely more than potential alcoholics, 25% of the total deaths in this age category are alcohol-related. This isn't to say that all this carnage, 25% of the deaths of 20 to 40 year olds, or three, almost three and a half million deaths a year worldwide, that's not AA's fault. Lifestyle related premature deaths from diet, smoking, and other health problems demonstrate that we can't save everyone from self inflicted wounds. But it's easy to say we in AA, like Bill W. before, could be asking, as he did, open quotes. Without much doubt, a million alcoholics have approached AA during the last 30 years. We can soberly ask ourselves, what became of the 600,000 who did not stay? How much and how often 
did we fail all these people. So if we can help more, even if we can just help a few, why wouldn't we try something new? Not recklessly, but courageously. It's not a stretch to say that we AAs could do more. If some AAs feel inspired to write another big book, I don't think Bill Wilson would be discouraged about that. Maybe we should try something new and judge the results later. And we know a little about the people less likely to feel inclined to yield the big book story. It's not the 1939 intention, it's the 1939 language that arguably makes Alcoholics Anonymous less effective 82 years after it hit the printing press. It was a noble literary effort for its day. That I give a thumbs up to. Can someone suffering from the wrath of addiction, set aside the gender bias, heteronormative, antiquated, religiously biased narrative? Even if they can, should they? Do they need to? Many would say, set the big book aside to enjoy its rightful place in history that it's earned from a historical perspective. For progressives in search of recovery today, give them something contemporary. And no harm comes from a benign book. The harm comes from something known as systemic discrimination. This isn't to say members are sexist, secular phobic, old-fashioned, or homophobes, no more than the general population. The discrimination is baked into rituals and the process of reading a book to which the language does not meet the standards of what we call today cultural humility. The American Psychological Association defines cultural humility as the ability to maintain an interpersonal stance that is other-oriented or open to the other in relation to aspects of cultural identity that are most important to the person. Could be youth, gender identity, creed, race, Cultural humility for groups and for AA World Services publishing requires three disciplines, none of which break away from AA philosophy, our traditions, or the concepts. The three disciplines are, one, fix power imbalances, two, work with groups that advocate for our underrepresented populations, and three, Commit to regular self-inventory. In other words, critique our literature and our rituals. Group inventory, we call it. Am I saying the book Alcoholics Anonymous is antithetical to cultural humility? You're getting warm. The book's benign. It doesn't discriminate or castigate or alienate. My concern lies with one who wields said book. Beware the person who knows only this, Thomas Aquinas. He who casts the Bigabooka as the rules for AA life, the textbook as a source, as an authority, then yes, that's what I mean. AA, the book, and some of our rituals do fall short of 21st century standards for cultural humility. 
I understand why big book fans view the book as a or the center of a life philosophy and recovery. They owe their second chance at life to the experience of going through the book with a trusted guide and repeating the process with others. The book is soothing, familiar, and it's anecdotally proven to work. The curious question is why, for those who don't resonate with Ye Olde Book, why do we see it as an immovable influence in our AA practice or our AA meetings? Maybe it's conditioning. Maybe we lack imagination. For feminists, free thinkers, forward thinkers, there comes an unnaturalness with joining a conversation about a big book approach. Now, I found even atheist agnostic meetings that cherry-pick the book with great mastery, more secular passages from more about alcoholism, there is a solution, working with others, appendix to the spiritual experience, etc. Now, only one with, you know, redlining disdain for big bookism would deny that there's some insight about the dilemma of addiction and the transformational usefulness of working with others outlined in the book. The goodness found in the big book is also found in our oral tradition, one alcoholic talking to another and listening to each other. There is maybe enough reading material out there already written after the death of Bill Wilson, and it's not out of place to be reading that in our AA meeting. While I've framed AA's first half and second half as 43-year segments, you might want to think about it this way. The first half is over the first 85 years. We're starting the second 85 years. So let's see how we can alter or improve the remaining journey. Can we think about the game in front of us with limitlessness and not ruminate about the past? It has always been, is a mindset and not a limit. More has been revealed and more will be written. By whom? When? Secondly, AA members and groups have long borrowed from other literature and readings. AA didn't invent the serenity prayer or other popular prayers adapted by some groups. Hazelden books and other AA experiences of the steps or other daily reflections, biographies, collections of stories by alcoholics, these are all currently used at AA groups. Back to Basics is a book that whole meetings are based upon. This Wally P. book is not instead of AA literature, but Back to Basics, the Alcoholics Anonymous Beginners Meeting, came out in 1997. It's customarily read at some meetings today. No one's saying that's not real AA. Directing our energy from what AA as a whole should be doing and looking a little more towards the tools and improving outcome rates in our own groups, this is a way we can modernize AA right now in our home group, in mine and in yours. Obviously, if we find something that works better, it will catch on organically. Looking at the AA 12 traditions, ostensibly the rules by which we conduct our meetings 
and interact within the fellowship as a whole. Traditions, they leave the machinations of what to read and how to get and stay sober, they leave that up to us. If we ever feel we need to justify the legitimacy of AA minus the big book, we can point to the traditions or to a whole subculture of AA members who showed us how to stay sober without the book. That's the founders, an example of the original hundred-ish members who stayed sober without any AA steps or any AA book. They borrowed from what was in fashion at the time. They read The Common Sense of Drinking by Richard Peabody. Oxford group materials were readily available. The Varieties of Religious Experience, a study in human nature by William James, I understand was quite popular. So, in a way, non-Big Book AA could be called even more traditional AA than Big Book meetings. And the third point, AA does keep reinventing ourselves in printed form. Uh, Think of our pamphlets, AA for the Alcoholic with Mental Issues, P87. The God Word, Agnostics and Atheists in AA, P86. We had the safety card for AA groups. We newly updated Women in AA. That was our fifth pamphlet, P5. It was adapted to members' demands and changing times. Pamphlets are living documents, updated as language and demographics dictate, always keeping cultural humility in mind. Practicing cultural humility speaks to specifics, creed, gender, age, sexual orientation, race, etc. But there is something hiding in plain view that may answer the question, why won't AA rewrite the big book? Maybe we did. Is the 1939 offering, as the subtitle suggests, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism? It was based on three or four years' experiences, all trial and error, and the best practices that came from them. So if that's what the big book is, then the answer is yes, we did rewrite it. It's hiding in plain sight. It contains the experience of more than half a million people recovered from alcoholism, based on 40 years of collective, evolving experience from 1935 to 1975. It's not sacred. We keep updating it. We continue to input new doctor's opinions and make corrections. This is Living Sober, how millions of people have recovered from alcoholism. It is secular, practical, and contains little or no supernatural agency as a requirement for getting or maintaining freedom from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. If you want the higher power stuff, read our companion piece, Came to Believe, from 1973, a 120-page collection of stories by AA members who write about their spiritual awakening. Living Sober is not just for atheists, came to believe is not strictly for monotheists, but each camp will have its preference. And Living Sober opens with this. There's no prescribed AA right way or wrong way. Each of us uses what is best for 
himself or herself, without closing the door to other kinds of help we may find valuable at another time. Each of us tries to respect others' rights to do things differently. Sometimes an AA member will talk about taking the various parts of the program in cafeteria style, selecting what they like and leaving alone what he or she do not want. That's page two. In the last chapter, it's called Finding Our Own Way. It's easy to understand why there are no living sober fundamentalists. In between these two rather non-fundamentalist suggestions, there's a lot of collective know-how about one day at a time, staying away from the first drink, seeking professional help, sex, drugs, what to do when around alcohol, consuming fellows, resentment, self-pity, gratitude, loneliness, insomnia, and more. There's 31 chapters. Living Sober quietly sells 30 to 50,000 copies a year. Came to believe not as many. I read uh, John Loritzen's 2014 A Free Thinker in AA. This is an account of how to stay sober for 50 years in AA without 12 steps. John L. is a Living Sober fan. However, not all of AA is excited about it. We don't even sell one Living Sober for every AA meeting there is each year. It's a great gift. It's a great newcomer tool. It's a great way to kick off your meeting or mine. Living Sober could use more of a going over. It could use more gender-neutral language and a freshening up again. I can tell you the booklet was completed by Barry L. He gave his last talk before he died at the Gay and Lesbian Meeting at the 1985 Montreal 50th Anniversary of AA World Convention. So it's not overly 1930s middle America, that's for sure. Sure, if you can write a better book, do it. I'll read it. But I wonder if some of the concerns about members being thumped with big book exceptionalism can't be set aside by starting more living sober meetings. Read at every meeting. Read other books. Lots more liberal meetings just don't read anything at all. Hearing from assembled members is every bit as wise and useful as something that one of us happened to write down one day. This book is being talked about right now by AA World Service. In its previous yellow and black cover, it had a subtitle, Living Sober, Some Methods AA Members Use for Not Drinking. Our General Service Conference is entertaining a new subtitle. I don't think how millions of people have recovered from alcoholism since the first 100. I don't think that would fly. I think it's too cheeky. But anyway, I'm leaving it up to you. Give it some thought. What should the subtitle of Living Sober be? I think the book is worth rallying around. If you go to N.A., there's Living Clean. It's a 2012 look at recovery. Modern-day language, dealing with modern-day issues. If I'm in an N.A. meeting with breakout rooms, you'll find me in the Living Clean room. An idea, uh, maybe something we can do about making living sober more accessible. Uh, for the sake of alcoholics in and outside of AA, our books, Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, these can be read in their entirety if you go to aa.org. You can also read AA's daily reflections each day. Wouldn't it be helpful 
for more secular-minded AA members for sure, and others, to have Living Sober in PDF, available to read for free right beside our other helpful AA literature. Whatever the reason we have, the big book, the 12 and 12, and all of our pamphlets accessible to all, whatever these reasons are, it would be the same reason why Living Sober should be available too. I don't know how long you've been in AA, but many in the secular community, once the British General Service Conference created the Agnostic and Atheist leaflet, the God Word, groups in Canada and the U.S. brought motions to our districts to ask our area delegates to express our interest to the General Service Conference for Canada-USA in adopting and adapting, in English, French, and Spanish, this pamphlet, for worldwide use. By going through regular channels, our needs and our interests were heard by the conference, who voted to do so with substantial unanimity. We could do it again. We could each have a business meeting, bring a motion to send our GSR to the uh, district table with something that read something like, we ask our area delegate to ask this year's General Service Conference that Living Sober in PDF be made available on AA.org alongside the big book and our 12 and 12. For the same reason we make these two books and all of our pamphlets accessible to read online for the benefit of AA members and the still-suffering alcoholic, we feel deeply for our own purpose and those yet to join us, AA.org could be even more helpful by making Living Sober available in the same way. So we ask our districts to support us in bringing this to the uh, area assembly. How could they say no? Why would they say no? The next general conference meets April 2021 and our area assemblies are coming up. We're going to talk about the 2021 general service conference agenda we could express what role this booklet plays in our recovery. I'll go into more about how it's been a game changer for me in our next uh, blog podcast. I'll describe my own experience with getting sober in the first half of AA history and how living sober played a role in that. It's no bestseller, not like the big book, but it's a door opener for many, for secular-minded alcoholics and for the sober curious visitor. Living Sober is a collection of practical AA experience that has helped millions of AA members get or stay sober. So that's it. We're out of here. We're going out with music. This is Lachlan. I saw this uh, come in for my podcast, Indie Can Radio, and uh, we've played Lachlan before. Uh, she's working with a singing coach, which is uh, Ryan Luchek. The Ryan Luchek Band was the first live at IndyCan on episode one of IndyCan back in, I don't know, 2006, I guess. Goes back a long way. Anyway, this is a song called Energy by Lachlan. You can link to her music and social media at rebelliondogspublishing.com. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio. Thank you.
Writing the big book, The Creation of AA, and we're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. <laughs> 